I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. There are lots of cryptocurrencies, but only a couple of household names in the industry. One, however, is Brad Garlinghouse. Now, Brad is the CEO of Ripple, a digital currency firm building applications and infrastructures supporting the digital asset XRP, which is supposed to operate like a bridge currency, connecting government-backed fiat currencies for international remittances. Now, Ripple is a bit unusual for most crypto firms, in part because they actually have active clients, plus XRP, the cryptocurrency Ripple supports and owns roughly 50% of, enjoys the third highest market capitalization in the world. And as such, it enjoys hordes of devoted fans across the world. But the firm has faced some uncertainty about the legal status of XRP, and like all cryptocurrency firms, is operating in an age of growing confusion and skepticism in the wake of Facebook's widely criticized announcement that it too would launch its own cryptocurrency called Libra. I had invited Brad to speak at Washington's FinTech Week, a conference I ran this year with CQ Roll Call, Georgetown Law, and the Institute of Financial Markets, and he agreed to not only speak at the conference, but to also sit down with me on the sidelines for a special conversation for the podcast. Now, although I'd attended a Ripple event at Berkeley, and Ripple's nonprofit organization has supported blockchain research at Georgetown, I had never met the man, and I wanted to know just what makes him tick and how he operates in an age of uncertainty. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Gonna find you and then you want We are absolutely delighted to have Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO of Ripple here on Fintech Beat, to talk to us a little bit, obviously about Ripple, but also cryptocurrencies and other big things happening in Washington, DC. Brad. Thank you so much for joining the show. Chris, thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. Well, you know, this has been a pretty astounding couple of weeks uh, in the world of crypto, especially crypto policy. Um, we also had last week uh, some of Mark Zuckerberg's comments on the, on, on the Hill. I, I, I just wanted to first get your perspective as one of the uh, leading uh, lights out there in crypto world. When you see these conversations on Capitol Hill uh, about Libra and about cryptocurrencies more generally, I mean, what do you usually think? I mean, are you happy about the attention that it's generating or uh, do you have concerns? Uh, what's How do you feel? Well, the first thing I think is kind of almost the macro, oh my gosh, how far we've come. You know, I joined Ripple about four and a half years ago and first was exposed to Bitcoin about a couple years before that. And, you know, had you told me that we'd be living in a world where there'd be congressional hearings last week with, you know, the CEO of one of the most valuable companies on the planet, if we'd had the president of the United States tweeting out about cryptocurrencies, regardless of the content of either of those. The president is yeah. tweeting out about crypto. Yeah. <laughs> I would not have predicted that when I joined Ripple four and a half years ago. Uh, you know, how does it make me feel? It makes me feel enthusiastic because I think the some of these conversations need to be have need to be had and we have to work through some of the questions that these new technologies represent and what they may change. 
I do think though, and you kind of introduced into your question, I, I, I think there is some risk with extra attention and scrutiny comes what what will, how will regulations change? And, you know, for Ripple, we have tried very hard to work within the frameworks that exist, leaving aside the question around how to classify different digital assets. Uh, banking regulatory frameworks are actually pretty clear, you know, and, and we have kind of taken the position that we're not changing a KYC requirement, an AML requirement, OFAC compliance, all these different acronyms that go with regulation of banking, which is important. And so it, it makes me excited. The wonderful and, mix of acronyms yes, that that makes for financial yes, alphabet soup. Yeah. But, yeah. Part of, at least I get the sense when I uh, both participated in some of these hearings and, 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 and as I've looked uh, on from afar, is that people are trying to get information. I mean, there are literally thousands of cryptocurrencies out there. And, you know, there's a spectrum more or less between, uh, you know, the average American may have heard of Bitcoin and because of hearings, uh, like uh, the one with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you know they they know that Facebook has some kind of cryptocurrency, and they may or may not know the word Libra. But then you get to something like XRP, and uh, uh, even as as much interest as as you've generated, and, and particularly in the crypto community, I think it's useful to walk our our listeners through sort of where in between Bitcoin and Libra uh, XRP is is located. And what is it supposed to do and how does it differentiate itself from, from those sort of two poles? Perfect. Well, I'll start by pointing out that I mean, today we say Libra, and I think I always make a point of inserting the word white paper. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that's true. the Libra white paper uh, has contrasted with Bitcoin. We're way further over on the, the, the Bitcoin side of things. And actually, I would even say in some ways on the other side of the Bitcoin side, meaning you know, today Libra is a white paper. It's an idea. There's no working activity you know, Bitcoin actually is obviously a working network and solving a store of value problem. You know, with XRP and what how Ripple uses XRP, it is really solving its utility. It's uh, solving a real problem. And I think the maturation of this industry, arguably, you know, years ago started with kind of serving Silk Road. I think we all acknowledge that happened. And, yeah. you know, that, it, wasn't it the best, that wasn't the best use. Yeah, that wasn't term. the highlight. Right. Uh, but then we kind of moved into this phase of arguably over rampant speculation. Now, that's one of the few examples you say, well, that's progress. Yeah. Now, speculation is probably not the, I certainly don't think it's anywhere close to the end point. And it, you know, I think what we're graduating to in 2019, and certainly I think we'll see more of in 2020, is real use cases, solving real problems. And I think people are figuring out how these different assets, how these different technologies can be applied to solve real problems. One of the challenges of Silicon Valley, and you know, I've lived there a long time, but Silicon Valley sometimes has a technology in search of a problem versus a problem in search of a technology. And for Ripple, we've been very clear about what problem we're trying to solve. Some people in the crypto community, I think still, they're trying to solve problems that I'm not sure are real problems. So, so, so what exact problem are, are you trying to solve? Ripple is solving a problem with regard to how correspondent banking, and correspondent banking is the, the interplay between cross-border banks. So if I want to send Chris Brummer 10,000 pounds in the UK, uh, today, the way the banking system works is banks have pre-funded accounts in other currencies, and that's kind of dormant capital sitting there and waiting for it to be activated and waiting for a payment to be activated. Uh, that's there's an opportunity, I think, to decrease that pre-funded amount and make the whole system much more efficient. So today, order of magnitude, you got about $10 trillion in these pre-funded accounts. 
if we can reduce that by half by using these digital assets to shuttle liquidity in real time, then I think you dramatically improve, frankly, global commerce. You're reducing friction. That's a good thing. You're increasing speed. That's a good thing. And I mean this for all levels of participation, from big companies to people who are truly unbanked today. XRP, your, your cryptocurrency, sort of operates with a couple of, of, of institutionalized services that, 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 that you provide. And I'm only walking folks through this because yep. I think it's really important to stress just how different all the different cryptocurrencies are. And, and, and you guys have different kinds of products that, that facilitate that cross-border uh, financing and, and, and a flow of money uh, powered by, in, in effect, that that cryptocurrency. Is that a, a safe um, yeah. generalization? I'm going to correct one thing. For, yeah. I mean, Ripple uses an open source technology, the XRP ledger. It's not, quote, our XRP. We own a lot of XRP, and so we care about the health, the vibrancy, and activity. But one of the misperceptions that creates lots of uh, confusion in the marketplace is XRP is a separate open source technology. Our tech stack uses XRP, and we use XRP, frankly, because it's far more efficient than, I'll use Bitcoin or Ether for that matter. And, and I, I say more efficient as measured by cost per transaction. So on average today, a Bitcoin transaction costs about $1.80 and takes, I think last I saw, it was around 10 minutes. By contrast, an XRP transaction is about one one thousandth the price and a thousand times faster per transaction. So. I'm actually bullish on Bitcoin. I happen to own Bitcoin. I don't think Bitcoin's going to solve a payments problem because it's too slow and too expensive on a per transaction basis. I mean, yeah, it only can enable about seven transactions per second. And 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 the the, the way in which uh, how would you describe uh, not just the difference in terms of the efficiency of the payment operation, but one of the the frequent descriptors used for XRP is is a bridge currency versus a, a, a pure cryptocurrency. Yeah. You know, what does that mean in, in practice? Yeah. I'm thrilled you're asking this question because I, I think one of the great misperceptions in this whole space, and I, I recognize that everybody, not everyone agrees with me on this, we talk about these as cryptocurrencies. So let's define what does that mean, a currency? Now, for me, in a kind of just layman's English kind of, a currency is where I can walk into Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee with. None of these are currencies today, none. And I actually would go so far as to argue the consumer use case for these really to be currencies, in, in other words, in a consumer's hands, I don't know what problem that's solving in major economies, in major, I'll say G20 markets. G20 markets represent, you know, I think 90% of global GDP. And I, again, I know oftentimes people point out that there's lots of non-G20 markets where I get it. Yeah, You got, an inflation problem. I mean, you know, those countries oftentimes have already lost control of their monetary supply. And so uh, I'm not making that argument. But currency to me suggests a use case around fiat that I don't, we don't think about XRP as we're championing a, a consumer fiat experience. Libra, when it first came out, I think it's shifted the white paper. I think originally it was kind of, hey, we're going to be a new fiat currency. I think they've shifted that a little bit. But XRP, we think about as an institutional shuttling of value between different li liquidity pools, if you will. So today, a partnership we have with MoneyGram, they're going dollar to Mexican peso. Prior to our partnership with them, they would have to pre-fund every four or five days, you know, many millions of dollars into Mexican peso, and it would sit there and wait until, you know, debits, debits, debits. Well, now they can multiple times a day move on a treasury basis. It's not every time Chris walks in and makes a payment, it's 
No, the treasury operation has gone from every four or five days to multiple times per day. And that makes their treasury operations much more efficient. When you think through then uh, that particular uh, use case, it, it is that particular use case one uh, uh, that distinguishes itself uh, from Bitcoin also because of uh, uh, you know, the allied services that can be created around it. So the, the reason why I'm just bringing this up is uh, when you think through Bitcoin and Libra, there are other kinds of cryptocurrencies, some of which claim uh, advantages with programmability. Some claim advantages in terms of uh, the broader ecosystem in which they are uh, r relating. Some obviously go so far as to make certain kinds of claims in terms of the interface with retail uh, customers. You all are, are sort of going in between that and, and sticking more on that institutional end. Yeah, I, I look, I, maybe I'm not smart enough to know exactly how the consumer angle for cryptocurrencies plays out. I'm just making the argument that today uh, in G20 markets, you know, I, I did go to Starbucks this morning. I happened to use cash, but I could have used my Visa. I could use my Starbucks app, but it was all USD denominated and it was super efficient. I recognize that, you know, had I used my Visa, that Visa might have taken 150 bips. I don't know what their agreement with Starbucks is. Maybe it's 100 bips, you know, but it's, it's small enough that I think it's it's not material. I think one of the challenges for the crypto community broadly, and as you talk about the different use cases, you know, many years ago when I was at Yahoo, I penned this document called the Peanut Butter Manifesto. And the idea behind the Peanut, Peanut Butter Manifesto is that Yahoo is spreading itself too thinly across lots of different initiatives. In the crypto community, I think the best counsel I can give any entrepreneur thinking about being in this space is be really focused and really clear about the problem you're solving and go deep with that customer segment. What I think has given Ripple a lot of momentum is early on we decided, here's the problem we're trying to solve around correspondent banking. We know who that customer is. We know how to target them. We know how to build technology and products for them. And I look at some of what's going on, and you, know, you talked about uh, programmable money, if you will. That's a great, interesting concept, but like, it, you know, it's kind of, if I'm a customer, like, what do you want me to do with that? We have thought very hard about like, how do you go to market? How do you understand that customer, serve that customer? And you know, I, I think some of the projects in the crypto space have had a peanut butter problem of being far too broad, far too many use cases, far too many just generic stuff as opposed to go deep and really understand that customer. So, uh, so depth as opposed to sort of breadth, breadth yeah. kind of a business strategy. Um, so moving back, you know, to, to the, you know, we're in Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, we're all about policy and regulation. And, and uh, 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 at the same time, the regulators are trying to grapple with uh, understanding cryptocurrencies as much as they are concerned with regulating them. And there's just an enormous amount of energy, regulatory, administrative energy, sort of devoted towards thinking through what, you know, qu'est-ce que c'est, you know, what, what exactly uh, cryptocurrencies are. And you know, part of that 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 uncertainty is uncertainty on the regulatory end, and then it also leads to uncertainty for the market participants, and then it, it sort of creates this, this circle or, or cycle of, of, of uh, response and, and counter response. And XRP has had to live with that kind of uncertainty. Uh, uh, some people say it's a security, and others absolutely not. But how exactly, from a business end, do you? Uh, both uh, navigate the uncertainty, and then even more fundamentally, what is it, what kinds of tools do you think uh, regulators could use or, or could be helpful to, to regulators 
to uh, provide real-time kind of input uh, for a lot of the people who are thinking about entering into that space to create a cycle that's a little bit more, with more immediacy, both on the regulatory end, but also on the market participant end, um, to sort of move through some of the the, the big uh, regulatory unknowns. So one of the reasons why I love that you're doing programming like this is because I think it's clear to me that not just in Washington, but really more broadly than that, the amount of misinformation, I often refer to as FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, it's born, I think, of almost a tribalism within the crypto uh, world where different parts of the community are tribal about their particular, I mean, I've also referred to as almost religious. They're praying at the altar of one project versus another project. And I think that has fueled a lot of misinformation, which makes it frankly hard for regulators. It makes it hard for Washington DC to understand. And look, I, I mean, even while I have been in Washington, you know, meeting you, I've had some other meetings and I'm still a little bit amazed some of the questions I get. And you're like, okay, uh, we, we've got a long way to go. And I, I think we, the industry, do ourselves a disservice by spending the energy kind of throwing shade on other projects as opposed to like, I fundamentally believe to you, and I mean very genuinely, at Ripple, you know, we have invested a lot of money in the crypto community broadly in projects, some touching XRP, some not touching XRP, because I think all boats will rise. If the crypto community, the, the ecosystem, the industry grows, that's going to be good for Ripple. I feel, I'm 100% confident about that. And so uh, I'm spending time in DC and with you because I, I want people to better understand these things. Now, you also asked a little bit, talked about XRP. I mean, there is uncertainty. The SEC came out roughly, I mean, almost 18 months ago, order of magnitude, and said Bitcoin's not a security. And shortly thereafter, said Ether's not a security. Then they stopped. And they have gone kind of to the other end of the spectrum and gone after you know some enforcement actions on specific projects. You know that has created a little bit of uncertainty. You know you asked you know, how do you operate in uncertainty? You know my attitude is we're going to keep solving a customer's problem. We're going to keep building. We're going to building new products. We're going to sign up new customers. We've been fortunate because we're, we've gained a ton of momentum. Uh, frankly, both before that eighteen months ago, but even since then, and you know it's gone really really well for us. And I think it's just because we're kind of like look, our, we're heads down solving a customer problem. We're selling it, we're deploying it, we're making good progress. It's very clear to me that XRP is not a security. Uh, you know, other re consequential regulatory bodies like the UK's regulatory regulators of consequence have said that, in Japan they said that, and Singapore. I understand the SEC has a hard job. I also think, you know, when you're a hammer, everything's like a nail. Uh, and I think, you know, in the SEC, sometimes everything might look like a security. Uh, you know, we can talk more about this if you'd like, but you know, I, I think that we'll continue to have conversations with regulators globally and help them ed understand and educate and you know, clear up misperceptions and see. see I, I'm co confident that we'll end up in a good place. You know, well, part of the work also when you think about crypto is okay. So you have that regulatory uncertainty piece, and then you also because for Ripple in particular, trying to work with even the legacy financial institutions to sort of say, hey. We have this new product. You know, what do you think is the the hardest part of solving that uncertainty for them? That is sort of explaining to them what you do, and to explain to them, you know, here's my use value and my and my yeah. and my value proposition. Because as 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 you had mentioned, you know, between Silk Road and then you have the the the, the speculation, and so I'm I'm sure some of the more established players on Wall Street just want to know, okay, so what is it? Yeah, it's a good question, and I, I think. 
it's kind of interesting. I'll give you a couple specific anecdotes. I, I do spend, I don't know, 20 to 25% of my time talking to regulators globally. And I spend that time explaining to them that this isn't about Silk Road and every transaction that goes through Ripple's technology is KYC, know your customer. It's checked for AML. It's checked for that alphabet soup uh, that we have talked about. Uh, I don't think, it, well, MoneyGram would be another interesting anecdote. When we signed that deal, before going live, before announcing the deal, we spent time with them briefing their regulators of consequence about how this worked. And once they understood that we're, we're using it at an institutional level, there are no anonymous transactions. Like once they understand the basics, they're like, oh, so this is just a better way to manage your treasury operations. They're like, okay, great. I mean, you know, we were on the phone with lots of regulators uh, that MoneyGram, that regulate MoneyGram today because before they wanted to announce that deal, they wanted to make sure they understood what was going on and that this was, there's nothing to hide here. I was incredibly pleased to see the reaction we got from regulators across the board with MoneyGram because they're like, okay, great. And we've charged forward and it's worked out really well. Uh, and it is, it is, it is very interesting. Um, and just going back to your original sort of white paper, you know, spectrum to the actual uh, operations, you know, going concern example yeah. um, for, for, for crypto. Um, when you look forward, and, and you think about the the institutionalization or the adoption by the sort of legacy institutions um, between uh, you know banks and fintech firms, other, other kinds of fintech firms. Uh, how do you see that that playing out um, in in the sector? Um, uh, and also, uh, you know, do you have any any? Well, I was about to say, and how much is XRP worth? But <laughs> but, but 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 before the, the market question, but just uh, the adoption question. You know, what do you see as as the adoption um, and and the speed or pace of adoption in your banking and the non uh, bank fintech sector? Yeah, well, a couple of things. One is I think in the adoption of fintech technologies in the industry, I, I think anything that's championing what I'll call regulatory arbitrage, I think there's a very limited upside there. I think there are examples where I see companies taking advantage of a imbalance in regulatory frameworks. And yes, you can capitalize on that. I just think that's a short-term uh, opportunity. Eventually the playing field will be level. Uh, you know, on XRP itself, and really, I would say crypto broadly, I, I have publicly said before, you know, 99.9% .9 of all crypto trading is speculation today. The, the amount of real utility you're talking about is very, very low. And I, that's true within the XRP community as well. Uh, now, I've also said, like, you can watch, it's a public ledger. You can see, you know, where volumes are growing, contracting. And we, we've talked publicly about partly because of MoneyGram as well as some other customers were, who are using what we call on-demand liquidity, which is that product that's moving so you don't have to pre-fund that I was describing earlier. And you can see that the volume of transactions between XRP and the Mexican peso at a time when crypto trading dropped by about 50% over the summer, that volume grew by more than 50%. And that's because there's real utility. It, and that's a growing amount of traffic and we're continuing to grow that amount of traffic. And so you can see, you know, what is going on, you know, what percentage of XRP to MXN, Mexican peso transactions, as that grows, it's pretty safe bet that a larger, larger percentage of that is actually utility, not speculation. We have seen some individual days where over 80% of volume between XRP and MXN was actually payment flows for, through our on-demand liquidity product. So that means only 20% was, you know, just people speculating and trading. 
Well, I guess we're, we'll end sort of a little bit where we began and, and, and talking a little bit about u- utility. One of the big developments uh, sort of in crypto world is uh, the development of, of stable coins um, as, as alternative uh, uh, payment instruments. And, and Libra, okay, some people say it was a stable coin. Some people say it's not. I'd be curious well, to get your Right now, it's just a white paper. Right now, it's just like that. <laughs> it's that neither. Is, it's a white it's, paper. It's not, neither. I mean, but how do you view uh, that development and how do you see it um, impacting uh, 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 your work? Well, I think stablecoins obviously have been a fascinating evolution. As you said earlier, you know, th- this whole industry continues to evolve at such a pace. It's pretty fascinating. I don't think stablecoins were really material until maybe two or three years ago. And I-, I would say in some ways they've exceeded my expectations in terms of the problem they're solving. Uh, I-, I think stablecoins are definitely here to stay. For us, they don't really change. I mean, if you have... Uh, 50 stable coins, you still need interoperability between them. You need liquid, you know, kind of what Ripple's trying to do is really analogous to the internet of information where you had, if you're old enough to know Prodigy and CompuServe and AOL, you know, non-interoperable data sets. And then along comes TCP IP and HTTP and you created interoperability and the internet kind of destroyed the prodigies. And I think the way we look about at these closed network is Ripple is enabling technology to allow interoperability between the payment networks. So if I'm a Paytm customer in India, the largest mobile wallet provider in India with a couple hundred million digital wallets, and I want to get a payment to my mom on Mother's Day on Paytm from my BAML account, like today, you know, I even say that and I think, oh my God, like, like how would you do that? Right? I got $50 in my BAML account. I would have moved it to a Paytm account. Good luck. And chances are, you could not if you tried to move fifty. By the time you got the money there, all of it would be, gone, or most of it. It'd gone. be a lot less than fifty. <laughs> it'd be a lot sure. less. It'd probably right. all be gone. You know, why do we think about those not as just interoperable networks, and we can move money from one to the other seamlessly at extremely low cost and extremely fast? That's the vision we have for the future. And I think there's so many examples that you know I think it unlocks value for consumers, for businesses, and really accelerates global commerce. Brad. Thank you again so much for dropping by. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So let me tell you that Brad Garlinghouse is one of the most interesting persons in the world to talk to. He's smart, quick on his feet, and pretty darn funny. So I'm pretty sure that some of you may be interested in learning even more from Brad about Ripple and how XRP could one day interface with not only fiat currencies, but also stablecoins, Libra, and central bank digital currencies. So for this podcast, I wanted to leave you with a small excerpt of our conversation on stage during FinTech Week. If you want more, the full discussion can be found on CQ Roll Call's FinTech Beat webpage. One of the the questions that was always sort of is tagged along with conversations on Libra is, you know, are, are people able to just differentiate the different cryptocurrencies and each one, particularly the more established uh, cryptocurrencies, but even some of the, the, the sort of startup uh, cryptocurrencies, have uh, varying you know, ecosystems with, with the different right. uh, features to them. So maybe you can just walk our audience through you know, what Ripple does and uh, 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 to walk through the X, what the particular cryptocurrency of XRP is designed to do. Yep. So uh, in its simplest form, Ripple is an enterprise software company that sells software to banks and financial institutions. We use as part of our tech stack a 
an open source digital asset called XRP. We own a lot of XRP, and so we are certainly interested in the success of that broadly defined. Uh, but you know, I think there's a lot of intentional misinformation and sometimes just confusion in the marketplace about what is Ripple versus what is XRP. You know, uh, and that has, I think, the, the misinformation and the FUD that gets spread, I think it's kind of bad for the whole industry and makes it harder. I mean, I, you know, Chairman Clayton, who I think it's also just a huge sign of how far, far we've come that the chairman of the SEC is coming here and spending time with us is, I think, a big positive deal. I gave him a huge shout out and round of applause for that. Yep. I, I think that uh, the misinformation makes it harder for regulators to do their job. You know, as Chris knows, you know, one of the announcements that Ripple has made this week is we're opened a DC office at a time when I think a lot of companies in the space are running away from DC. We're running towards DC. Uh, we announced the, the creation of the office, and Michelle Bond, who's here, is going to be leading that office. And we announced that Craig Phillips, uh, who formerly was a counselor to Secretary Mnuchin and the Treasury, joined our board of directors. And I think they're both indications that we are uh, continuing to invest in making sure there's clarity in Washington, clarity, frankly, globally, with how digital assets, you know, the different functions and different forms. Uh, I think, as Chris knows, I, I think it's very dangerous to paint any industry with one broad brush. And I think that's certainly true in the crypto community. And uh, when that happens, I think we're doing a disservice to those that are maybe working more constructively with industry as opposed to those who are trying to circumvent regulation and circumvent laws. The challenge sometimes in Silicon Valley, the echo chamber I was referring to earlier, is you have technologies in search of a problem versus a problem in search of a technology. And I think for tier one economies, let's say the G20, it's not clear to me that the currencies in those markets, the dollar works well, the yen works well, the euro works well, and I don't see these things as penetrating consumer use cases at scale anytime soon. Brad, thank you so much for coming. Absolutely, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.